Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Galena Limarenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at the PFL in Switzerland, and will be your host today. Today, we'll be talking to Robert Bailo and Robert Bartholomew about their new book, Havana Syndrome. Mass Psychogenic Illness and the Real Story Behind the Embassy Mystery and Hysteria. It is one of the most extraordinary cases in the history of science. The mating calls of insects were mistaken for a sonic weapon that led to a major diplomatic row. Since August 2017, the world media has been absorbed in an attack on diplomats from the American and Canadian embassies in Cuba. While physicians treating victims have described it as a novel and perplexing condition that involves an array of complaints including brain damage, the authors present compelling evidence that mass psychogenic illness was the cause of Havana syndrome. This book is a scientific detective story and a case study in the social construction of mass psychogenic illness. Well, Bob Bailo and Robert Bartholomew, welcome to the show. Thank you. So as we're living through the times of the global pandemic, I was wondering if you could start by reflecting on how has it affected you and your work and also some main takeaways that you have gathered from this experience. And we're going to start with both, Bailo. Uh, well, uh, it certainly has influenced me in my daily activities and that I have been spending most of my time at home in my life library and uh, uh, advantages, I've been able to read and write a lot more. Um, I recently retired in the last year, and so my goal was to spend more time writing and reading, and so that has worked out reasonably well, although I miss the opportunity to uh, interact more with my colleagues. Did you manage to adjust to this uh, new online world? Uh, well, of course, again, uh, you have to. Uh, and I've participated in many, many Zoom meetings. But uh, I think there is no replacing a, uh, you know, personal uh, interactions. And so... I miss that, but again, I, I think that uh, the, the people adapt, and I have adapted. And Robert? I'd say the pandemic has actually given me more time to investigate Havana Syndrome, as I've done most of my teaching online over the past year and a half. So I see it as a silver lining. And did that impact your travel? So maybe you you think you're going to keep your traveling habits now uh, going forwards? 
Yeah, well, you lose the face-to-face interaction, although I also, like Bob, uh, have had a lot of Zoom meetings over the last year and a half. So, Bob, can you tell us a bit more about yourself? And then we're going to go to Robert. Uh, well, I uh, uh, just retired, as I indicated, so I'm, a, I'm an emeritus, which is kind of interesting to use that term. I, I'm still not getting used to it, uh, but um, I, I've been a professor at UCLA since the early 1970s, so many, many years, uh, professor of neurology and head and neck surgery, and I've been involved in research, which is sort of my primary endeavor over the years. I, I, my focus has been on the inner ear and its connections to the brain, particularly the so-called vestibular system, which is the balanced part of the inner ear. And I've written extensively on that in the textbooks that I've had in now in the fourth edition that is sort of the, the basic uh, textbook in the area. And so uh, that is my research focus. My clinical focus is on patients with dizziness, dizziness and balance problems, vertigo. I have a dizziness clinic that I've maintained for many, many years. And uh, that has been my clinical focus. Were you always interested in, in studying brain? Yes, I think so. Uh, I, 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 as an undergraduate, I, I was uh, interested in mathematics and physics. In fact, that was, I, I was a math major and I, I sort of serendipitously got involved with medicine whenever I saw the usefulness of math and physics and understanding how the inner ear works and the inner balance system, inner ear balance system works. And uh, I was involved in some of the early efforts to model the inner ear uh, using mathematical and physical models. And that got me interested in medicine. And from there, I proceeded to work on a whole range of different projects but always continue to have an interest in mathematics and uh, even up until the present time and some of the things I'm working on now. Excellent. And Robert? Yeah, I was born on a dairy farm in Whitehall, New York, on Lake Champlain, not far from Canada. I became a radio reporter. Then within a couple of years, I decided to become a sociologist. I have a master's in sociology from the State University of New York at Albany, and a PhD from James Cook University in Australia. Uh, I'm a medical sociologist. I look for social patterns and illness outbreaks. I specialize in mass psychogenic illness and social panics. I think um, of mass hysteria as the placebo effect in reverse. In psychology, that is known as the nocebo effect. Uh, People can think themselves well. You can also think yourself unwell, which is the nocebo effect, based on a belief. And when that happens in a group, it's mass psychogenic illness. Um, A social panic or moral panic is an exaggerated response to a perceived threat like say, the Red Scare of the 1950s, where people were seeing communists everywhere. Um, Was there a real threat? Yes, there was, but it gets exaggerated. Sometimes these panics are also entirely imaginary, like the Salem witch hunts of the 1690s. And what would you tell our younger listeners and students who might be interested in pursuing career in, for example, uh, human psychology or in brain sciences? I would say, you know, go for it. You know, it's so important to do what you love to do. And if you love it, it's, it's not a job. You know, I love what I do. I also specialize in looking at topics on the edge of science, UFOs, uh, ghosts, haunted houses, uh, 
beliefs and monsters and stuff like that. And lake monsters, uh, Bigfoot, I don't believe in any of it. Uh, people often ask me, uh, do you believe? It's not a matter of belief. It's a matter of evidence. And the evidence really isn't there. But I look mainly at why people come to believe in these things in the absence of evidence. And a lot has to do with the psychology of misperception and human memory reconstruction. Human beings are very prone to seeing things that aren't there, to hearing things that aren't there, and to believe in things that have not been determined by science. Excellent. So your latest book is Havana Syndrome, My Psychogenic Illness and the Real Story Behind the Embassy Mystery and Hysteria. Can you tell us how did you come to writing it? Well, maybe I, I can start with that. Um, like most people, I originally heard about it by reading in the newspaper. Uh, this is back in 2018, I believe. Um, it was a remarkable story. Uh, it was, of course, very difficult to believe or understand the, the, the notion that, uh, that these embassy employees were being attacked by some, in quotes, sonic weapon, which was the term that was originally used. It, it caught me as being almost science fiction. I, in my area especially being the inner ear and the sound and balance system, you know, how does sound damage the brain? <laughs> how do you make a sound weapon that will damage the brain as, as these people were proposing? Um, that certainly picked my interest, and I, I was then reading subsequent follow-up articles, but the real major uh, breakthrough that made me become very interested was when I received a paper to review for the uh, journal, uh, JAMA, Journal of American Medical Association, where a group of researchers at University of Pennsylvania described the clinical findings in these embassy, uh, Cuban embassy uh, employees. And uh, they said they found evidence of brain damage and that it was caused by some type of a sonic weapon. They, they, the embassy employees apparently heard some type of sound and then became ill. And the, But the description of the type of symptoms they had was just all over the place. They had dizziness, headaches, brain fog, a whole range of... There, there was no real clear pattern. And they, it was more or less a descriptive type of paper. They, they really didn't do any systematic assessment of all of the people that were involved or any controls. And they also indicated that this secret weapon uh, was a, a, type of, a sonic weapon, but yet they did, they, they did not provide any information and even suggested that it was too secret to be disclosed, that the, the, it was, the government uh, was investigating it and that there was some presumably some evidence that such a weapon existed. So I, I, when I read the paper, I, I felt that it was really not a very good paper. I indicated that I would recommend that it be rejected because of the lack of really any real data. And that uh, I, I also indicated I thought the scientific community would be very concerned that there would be a backlash uh, if you publish this paper. But it was published, and uh, I think it did receive quite a backlash in the scientific community. But, of course, subsequent events showed that uh, it became a sensational story. And the news, uh, uh, of course, the both um, international and national news, it was a sensational story. And it became magnified. And, of course, we all know what subsequently has happened. It's now supposedly occurring all over the world. Literally hundreds and hundreds of cases are supposedly have, have occurred. 
Yet to this date, we just don't have any specific information about what represents the syndrome. There is no definition of the syndrome. And how does one make a, di a diagnosis of the syndrome? I don't think there is any clear information on that. So it, it, is, it, it, it caught my interest and I, I, I uh, began reading and writing about it. And then I got in touch with Robert, who I've been uh, keeping track of with his, his interest in the syndrome. And we decided that we, we were a good combination to, to get together to write about it because we had such a different point of view. Am I being a medical specialist, he being an expert in field of mass psychogenic illness, that this would be a good combination, and that we then proceeded to work on the book. And Robert, how did you get acquainted with the story? Like most people, I think, um, I first heard of the story in August of 2017, and I thought to myself, wow, that's terrible. Some foreign government is attacking American diplomats in Cuba with a mysterious new weapon. Yet the more I looked into the story, the more skeptical I became because it was so contradictory and it just didn't make any sense. The more I looked at the history of sonic weapons, which uh, don't work very well, uh, unless it's loud noise. And so the more I looked, the more I examined this explanation, which at first I assumed must be true, because that's what we were told, the more skeptical I became to the point where today I am 100% skeptical. So did you recognize that it could have been a psychogenic illness from the beginning? Yes. Um, when you hear stories like this and claims, you know, your ears kind of perk up and you think, oh, that's interesting. I wonder if, and just the more I looked into it, the more and more this uh, looked like a classic outbreak of mass psychogenic illness. All right, so let's look into some of the story and also some science that you cover in your book, and we can start with the basics. So can you describe what is a psychogenic illness? Yeah. I'm going to let Bob, Bob handle that one. Well, we, uh, we, we, we uh, both have I think similar ideas. Um, it, it, this was one of the most impressive aspects of this right from the beginning that I, I was really surprised by the lack of general understanding of psychogenic illness by the medical community. I mean, I, when I read this paper that I mentioned that was submitted to JAMA, the authors did at least uh, mention the possibility of mass psychogenic illness in their discussion, but they said, oh, well, this couldn't be that because these are all very strong people who are well-educated and uh, smart, uh, uh, and mo many of them were men, so this could not possibly have been psychogenical. So they had these misconceptions that it still is primarily a condition that affects women and that you have to be weak in order to experience psychogenic illness. When indeed, everyone experiences psychogenic illness. Psychogenic illness is, is extremely common. And there have been estimates that at least 50% of all doctor visits are for psychogenic or psychosomatic illness. And I think that's, that may be an underestimate. It, it is extremely common. And essentially, it is a, a, type, a symptom and an illness where there is no medical explanation. And after extensive medical evaluation, one cannot find any clear test abnormality that it can explain it. And on a routine basis, I mean, there have been many studies looking at just the general population. Symptoms such as headache, dizziness, um, mental fog, 
are all extremely common. Uh, people have them on a daily basis. In fact, it's much more common to not have symptoms than it is to have symptoms. Most people do have symptoms on a regular basis, and most of them are related to uh, psychogenic aspects. And Robert, how and why does it arise? Well, um, I think of mass psychogenic illness, a.k.a. mass hysteria, as the placebo effect in reverse. We've all heard of the placebo effect. If I give you a sugar pill and tell you you're going to feel better, often you will. It's the power of the mind. It's the power of belief. It's the power of expectation and framing. But if I give you a sugar pill and tell you you're going to feel better, and then all of a sudden someone rushes in and says, oh my gosh, that sugar pill I just gave you, it's been contaminated with rat poison. There's a good chance that within a few minutes you might get headache, dizziness, nausea. You might even vomit, but there's nothing physically wrong with you. Think of it as a software problem, an overstimulation of the nervous system, if you will. And You know, one of the issues here is, you know, there's a problem publicly with the perception and acceptance of mass psychogenic illness. When you look at the head of the Biden administration's panel looking into Havana syndrome, Pamela Spratlin, who recently resigned from the post in the face of pressure after she did a teleconference with victims who were left incensed when she refused to rule out the possibility of mass psychogenic illness. Within days, she was forced to resign. Some of the victims were saying things like, we're not mentally ill, we're not crazy. Mass psychogenic illness is not a mental illness. It's a collective stress response involving a belief. And we are all potentially susceptible as we all have beliefs. And what this tells you is that the investigation is not being driven by science. It's being driven by politics. And some of the authors of the Journal of the American Medical Association Studies have made comments like, well, it can't be mass psychogenic illness because there is no evidence the patients were colluding or feigning illness. What that tells me is that they don't understand the concept of mass psychogenic illness because it does not involve collusion. There is no gray area here. It's just wrong. This is uh, truly fascinating, Um, especially so you're not really saying that the symptoms of the patients are unreal, but the cause might be not physical, but psychological, is it? That's a very, very important point. And I think this is what, uh, again, uh, many people and many physicians don't understand is the symptoms of psychogenic illness and mass psychogenic illness are as real as any symptoms you can have from a brain tumor, from some uh, immune manifestation. Uh, The symptoms are, are similar. We have extensive studies now that look at the stress induced symptoms. And they, they involve some, some of the same brain pathways as symptoms from any other cause. Uh, with, with chronic stress, acute stress, there are major changes that occur both hormonally throughout the body and specifically in the brain in very specific pathways. I mean, we have extensive studies on pain and pain pathways in the brain. And we know that pain, chronic pain, unassociated with any underlying cause, activates the same pathways in the brain as does pain from cutting your hand or breaking a bone. The the same brain pathways are activated. The symptoms are real. And I think that is sort of at the fundamental problem here is that that we still are are going with this notion that this is, these people are, if they can't, if they're not feigning or they're, 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 they're not weak, they can't possibly experience the symptoms. It's just a misunderstanding of the, of the basic underlying premise. 
So how can it be diagnosed if some of the symptoms of the syndrome can be so different? That is, that is of course, a, a very key question. And, and I don't, I mean, I, that's what I, I wonder myself is how are they making this diagnosis? Because we, there really are no accepted diagnostic criteria. And the symptoms that the people are describing are all extremely common. Everybody agrees with that, and including the, the investigators that have tabulated the, the different symptoms. That these are these are the common everyday symptoms. So how does one decide who has the syndrome? Initially, it was based on at least most of them had the symptoms after they heard some type of a sound. This this is another very important area since of the initial twenty one people in, uh, in the Cuban embassy that uh, reported hearing sounds and then having the symptoms, uh, nine of them actually recorded the sounds they heard, and one of them actually did both an audio and a video recording. And the, these recordings were subsequently analyzed and by uh, groups of scientists in multiple different locations, and they concluded that the sounds were the sounds of crickets. And uh, this was a very consistent finding. And the one that did a video recording at the same time, all the, audio, uh, all the electronic equipment in the area worked normally. There, were, there was no indication of any kind of a, uh, either, either electromagnetic wave or electromagnetic uh, microwave kind of uh, effect that would occur. And of course, the sound was not loud. And the sound varied tremendously in, in, in terms of its description among the individuals. So we, we really don't have any criteria for the diagnosis. And, and now people are experiencing it without hearing a sound. So, uh, so is, it, is it necessary that it comes on after a sound or some sort of experience of a sound? Even that is not clear. And Robert, you already mentioned the patient's reaction to label uh, or not ruling out the psychogenic illness as a, a primary cause for the syndrome that they have. So why do you think there's such a pushback despite the clear evidence and reluctance to accept uh, the syndrome perhaps being due to psychogenic uh, causes? Most people are not knowledgeable on the subject of mass psychogenic illness. And it's so important to understand the context of an outbreak. You know, to figure out this case, you need to go back to where it began, patient zero, the first report. It all started in a small unit of CIA officers in Havana in late 2016. For weeks, they had been hearing mysterious sounds outside their homes. Then one day in late December, one of them experienced a headache and ear pain, and he went to the embassy clinic, and he noted that it seemed as if someone was pointing a beam of sound at his home at night. Now, his symptoms were what a, you would find in a doctor's office anywhere in the world, very normal symptoms, headache, ear pain. But once he mentioned that, and then soon after, a couple of other CIA officers who worked in the same unit made the same observation about hearing these strange sounds at night. When that happened, this folk theory emerged that they were being harassed by a new weapon that used sound. And this rumor then spread through the small CIA unit and later to the U.S. and Canadian embassies, which shared information, which had a very close relationship. And so the early theory was they were harassing the diplomats with a sonic weapon. And that seems really odd to make an assumption like that. But you have to put yourself in the historical context. The idea that they were being harassed made sense to them because there is this long history of Cuban agents harassing diplomats going back decades. All of the diplomats who were sent to the new embassy in Havana in 2015 had been briefed about it. During the Cold War, 
Cuban agents were notorious for harassing American diplomats. They would sneak into their homes while they slept and open up all the windows so they'd be filled with mosquitoes. They might rearrange bookshelves, furniture. You'd wake up in the morning, come downstairs, and on your kitchen table, there'd be cigarette butts, and you don't smoke. There'd be dog poo on your kitchen floor, and you don't have a pet. Um, So they would do these things, and it was well known. This went on for years and years, and there was a tit for tat in Washington as well with the uh, American agents. And so every one of the diplomats in Cuba, before they went over there, they were counseled that you are going to be under surveillance 24-7. And before long, they were being warned that they may be a target of a sonic weapon. By any definition, that is stress. And the main driver of cases of mass psychogenic illness throughout history is stress. That's why the early assumption by the State Department that they were being targeted by a sonic weapon is so really, that's what triggered this. And there's an old saying, when you hear the sound of hoofbeats in the night, first think horses, not zebras. The doctors in the State Department went for the most exotic hypothesis early on. They were searching for unicorns when they should have stuck to mundane explanations. Well, uh, one of the things that I just wanted to, uh, I think, emphasize is is, uh, and expand on what Robert just said is about uh, regarding uh, the the, um, media, the media and and how how that evolves with this. And then I'll get into uh, examples, actually, because the media is involved in many of these and in how they are expanded. But initially, people were were uh, said to have brain damage. These these people were uh, they were evaluated by by Pia by uh, um, doctors at, at University of Pennsylvania in the in the concussion center in the brain injury center, and and, and supposedly there was evidence of brain damage on MRI scans of their brain, and then also uh, doctors from Miami had to examine them and said they had hearing loss and. So th- this was an example initially that so we have objective findings and we keep hearing this over and over. There were these people have objective signs of, of brain damage and, and of ear damage. And it was throughout the press. There, this was, you know, every 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 press uh, uh, report ind- indicated this was it was it was a te- taken for advantage uh, for granted. It was it was an objective finding. But whenever the actual uh, material came out, there was no evidence of brain damage on MRI. The MRI scans of the brain were actually normal. And there was no objective hearing loss. Uh, Of all the tests we have, probably the most reliable and simple is a simple audiogram, hearing test. And the hearing tests were normal in these people, despite the fact that they complained of hearing loss. So we had this situation where all, we, it was assumed that there was both brain damage and ear damage, yet whenever we came down to seeing the data, there was no evidence of that. And this, this type of thing has happened over, over the many, many examples of mass psychogenic illness. The press gets involved, and of course they like sensational stories, and initially the sensational stories come out, and People become very frightened, of course, and it even, of course, helps expand the the, the, the initial events. But the the bottom line at this point is we don't have any evidence that the patients or the the employees of the embassies and the subsequent people around the world have had any objective evidence of brain damage or ear damage. And I think that. And, and Robert will, uh, can I'm sure expand on this because this is something that he has been particularly interested in: is the role of the media in in, in expanding and 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 uh, causing the 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 
story to, to go viral as it has in this case. But Robert, why don't you take that up? Yeah, let me support what Bob has been saying. White matter track changes never happened. In December of 2017, information was leaked to the media that doctors examining a number of the Havana syndrome patients had discovered significant white matter tract changes in their brains. This was big news. And for the next year, there were headlines about doctors finding brain anomalies and many diplomats. Then in early 2018, the study finally came out. And only three of the patients had white matter tract changes. Two were mild, one was moderate. If you walk down any street in Los Angeles or New York today and randomly pick 21 people, that's exactly what you would expect to find because white matter tract changes are common in everything from migraines to depression to normal aging. So the claims of white matter tract changes are a myth. And then the brain damage never happened. This came from a 2019 study in the same journal, which found brain anomalies in a group of diplomats. And it made headlines, you know, diplomats suffering from brain damage. They did find anomalies, but that's not the same as brain damage. The authors were forced to admit in the study that the anomalies were not so significant that they could not rule out the possibility that they were caused by individual variation. You study brain scans of any group and you'll find anomalies. It's like teeth. If you look at the teeth of 25 people, you'll find anomalies. It doesn't mean that they were exposed to an energy weapon. Brain anomalies, similar to those found in the 2019 study, can be caused by exposure to long-term stress. Plus, it was a bad study. 12 of those affected had histories of concussion compared to zero in the healthy controls. I mean, that alone could account for the differences between the two groups. And then the hearing loss, as Bob mentioned, never happened. In 2018, the results of a forthcoming study on 25 diplomats were leaked to the media and it was claimed that about a third of the patients had hearing loss. Once again, this made headlines, diplomats suffering from hearing loss. But when the study was published that December, they found that only two of their subjects had hearing loss. And in both cases, it had occurred before they were even posted to Cuba. What happened was they were interviewed and the subject said they thought they had hearing loss, but when they were given the standard hearing test, the others returned normal results. So there's a lot of misinformation out there that has been propagated by the media. So is it the case of the horse bolting and then you're closing the gates after it's already gone, that it's really difficult to take things back when you find out? That's what happens with these types of events is, uh, is information is initially sensational in the press. This is so classic, in fact, for many of these uh, that have occurred over the years is, yes, initially the press jumps in with all of this type of information and, and it's sensational. People get excited. And then at some point, though, they then find all oh, the answers. And that is always, though, just mentioned in, you know, at the end of the of the paragraph, and, and that is, nobody's that much interested anymore. Once that comes out, uh, it, 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 it really is, is, is not nearly as sensational, so nobody's very interested in it. But I think that in, in many of the prior, you asked about prior events, I mean, the, there were the classic examples were the, the gassers that occurred in the Midwest uh, in the, in the mid, mid uh, 20th century is the press initially had all of the sensational headlines presented all this material, got people really worked up. And then finally they, when it was sort of becoming generally accepted that this was mass psychogenic illness, they'd, they'd had, you know, subsequent saying, well, we, we, we really probably, we knew it, we knew it all along. It probably was 
but we we went along with it or or they would make fun of some other uh, newspaper that had more sensational stories than they did or something like that so it it is uh, very common that the initial sensations are what gets all of the the notoriety whereas when finally the answers come in it's not much uh, 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 very few people even are aware of it you asked about uh, favorite examples of psychogenic illness in history in 1761 Benjamin Franklin invented a new musical instrument called the glass harmonica and it worked by spinning glass discs on a shaft that was driven by a flywheel. You would wet your fingers, and as the glass discs spun around, it would make a high-pitched sound. Many people believed that it had therapeutic properties when it first came out. And in the years after it was invented, audience members in North America and Europe reported that the music cured them of various ailments. And then... Later, by the 1790s, rumors began to circulate that it was actually making people sick. Suddenly, people started fainting at concerts, and it was blamed for an array of medical conditions because the music was supposedly damaging the nervous system. You name the condition, and people were blaming it on Franklin's instrument. So the glass harmonica developed by Benjamin Franklin over the course of a couple of decades, went from a placebo device to a nocebo device. Another example is a telephone sickness. During the early decades of the telephone, many operators reported symptoms similar to Havana syndrome from exposure to crackling noises on the phone line. This was very common, and it went on for decades. When AM radio was first developed in the early 20th century, there were concerns that the invisible rays were making people sick and people were claiming to get sick from the invisible rays. When the ice cubes first came out, many people thought that you could get sick from eating the ice cubes because it was created from this artificial environment. But my favorite one, example of mass psychogenic illness um, happened at a zoo in England. And this was in the past uh, decade. In the entire history of the world, I am unaware of a single case of people complaining of giraffe noises making them sick. But that's exactly what happened in England. In 2015, I think it was, coinciding with news reports that scientists had discovered that giraffes communicate through infrasonic hums in the appendages in their heads. People living near giraffe enclosures, particularly the one at the Bristol Zoo in England, claimed that the animals were making humming sounds that were making them sick. And in reality, you know, this had never happened before, but it was the news reports that had come out saying that um, they had actually figured out what those humps were on the animals' heads, and they had the ability to communicate, particularly at night, with each other who were close by. But in reality, it is below the threshold of human hearing, so we can't even hear it. But people were aware of that, and you had over 100 people living near the Bristol Zoo getting together online, uh, forming a group, and then coming to the belief that this was actually making them sick and that they could hear this humming sound, which a lot of it, I think, was just basic tinnitus. And Bob, any notable examples for you? Oh, yes. Uh, one of my favorite <laughs> are, are, uh, the, is the hummers. So the, uh, the hummers are what we refer to people who hear the hum. And the hum is, as the word implies, is a, is a humming sound, although the descriptions of what exactly the humming sound sounds like is very variable. But this dates back more than a century and has been occurring around the world, uh, where cities uh, 
people in, in, in groups in the city would proclaim that they hear a humming sound and then they get ill. There's a famous uh, outbreak in Bristol, England, uh, one that I got and, and was particularly interested in is Taos, New Mexico, <laughs> uh, where people uh, heard this humming sound and uh, became, uh, complained of illness, and they got this local city council and even uh, got the uh, federal government to, to look into it, and they sent a group of scientists from Los Alamos and uh, from uh, nearby universities there to try to f- figure out what this hum was, and they, they could not find it. Uh, they they um, spent two weeks investigating it, could not identify what the source of the hum was. And again, it was not even clear what the individuals were describing since there was a variation in the, in the description of this humming sound. But... Uh, gradually over time, what the, the city learned to do, they, they decided that, well, the, 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 let's change the perception. So if you hear the hum, that's a sign of, of good fortune. And, and it, they even advertise that if people come to Tahoe, if you hear the hum, that, uh, that means that you're going to have good fortune. And suddenly the, the hum changed its, its meaning in the community, and there have been no recent cases of people getting ill with the, the Tahoe Sum. But there's actually a, a website where uh, investigators who, who have heard the hum and, and are believers in the hum uh, collect data on people around the world. And now there's there are thousands of entries of in, in this website where people are asked to, to describe the hum what, that they heard, how it made the meal, what their symptoms were, and so forth. And one can go online and find the, the, uh, the site and look at the various descriptions of the hum. But uh, there's really been no consistent pattern as to what it, the hum represents. And indeed, some people describe machine-like sounds, others even a more high-pitched sound. But it's uh, uh, similar when it's occurred around the world. Oh, these are truly fascinating examples. <laughs> so we already spoke about diagnosis or possible diagnosis of these illnesses. So what about the treatment or how do people stop being within this uh, psychogenic illness milieu? Well, that, that is really an important, I think, an important point. And, I, and I've tried to emphasize this. And I, you know, because I, I feel strongly that one of the key things is just, you know, recognizing that, first of all, it can be psychogenic and this can occur. And, and that people are not told they have brain damage if there's no true evidence of that. Because, I mean, there's no question if you tell someone they have brain damage, the chances of them recovering are much less likely than if you say, well, this is something that you have symptoms, they're real, but there is no evidence of brain damage and that you can get better. And the, the, the management, of course, is a lot of it is just reassurance. It is really remarkably effective in these kinds of things and not going overboard and, and telling them, well, you have brain damage, this is lifelong uh, phenomena, you, you know, the chances are you are not going to be able to recover. That That is uh, certainly not what should be, be done. And I think this is not doing these patients a favor by telling them or uh, uh, at least implying that there is brain damage because I think then the chances of these symptoms becoming chronic are, uh, are, are much greater. And indeed, in history, looking at these uh, prior examples, that's exactly what happens. When people are reassured and, 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 and re- this is recognized reasonably early, they, the, the prognosis is good. But if they aren't, and if they are told that they've had brain damage and that this could be a chronic condition or will be a chronic condition, it turns out that's what happens. And the symptoms become chronic and in many cases persist throughout the patient's life. Could I, could I just add to that? Uh, you know, in psychology, there's the famous Thomas theorem, which says if men define situations as real, 
they are real in their consequences. I would also argue that it affects females as well. Uh, that was written in 1923. But it's so important because, you know, the belief system that people have can affect how they get better. And with mass psychogenic illness, people gradually tend to get better over time with the reduction of the stress. But if you've been told in media reports and by doctors that you have brain damage, well, that's not a recipe for a happy ending here. Excellent. So it is really important to remove the stigma around it, isn't it? And to really acknowledge that people are experiencing some really, really profound distress. Yes. I mean, I think that, uh, uh, but that's, you know, that's what physicians do and should do is uh, have empathy and, and, and show that they understand what, what is going on. Uh, but the, to help these people, they need reassurance that there is not brain damage. It's just the opposite, I think, of what it's occurring. I mean, and that. But the, on the other hand, they have to be treated as though you know the the, the symptoms are real. They they they, they are uh, concerned about them, and and indeed, uh, you know, the in all cases, it certainly is originally occurred. They needed to take it seriously. And make sure there wasn't any kind of uh, external toxin or some some sort of a uh, you know uh, damage occurring. But when, once the evidence becomes clear, and I think you know we're now five years into this, more than five years, and there's no evidence of any weapon, absolute zero evidence of weapon, and absolute zero evidence of brain damage or brain injury. So at this point, we have to start saying, you know, let's, what, 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 common sense. And, and it's spreading around the world. Are there people, are, are, are the Cubans, the Russians, following agents around the world? Well, our uh, embassy employees, but even another aspect that people have ignored is this is not only happening amongst embassy employees. It's the, these are the only people that the government seems to be concerned about. But I get emails all the time from people who are sure they have Havana syndrome, just ordinary people who are in different parts of the world. And this has been also, there's no question that people have gone to the, uh, their doctors and in the original uh, outbreak in Cuba. There were about 15 people, ordinary citizens in Cuba, who went to the uh, Associated Press and said they have the same syndrome. And they were told to see their their primary doctor, their, the, that the, the government's not interested in these other people that are involved with the syndrome. But I think at this point, we have enough evidence to say, look, there is no brain damage and there is no secret weapon. That's my opinion. Yeah, and this appears to me to be a case of what happens when politics gets mixed with science. In 2018, a group of elite scientists known as the Jason Group came out with a report, and it was classified, and they concluded that mass psychogenic illness played a significant role in this outbreak of symptoms and that a microwave weapon was highly unlikely. And then the FBI report, which was recently leaked, concluded that it was mass psychogenic illness. And curiously, the Jason report only came out in September of this year through a Freedom of Information Act request, and the FBI report has never been released. Here are two major classified reports that came to the conclusion that mass psychogenic illness either played a major role or was the role in factor, yet the government had these reports and kept it quiet. And again, it's politics getting mixed with science. You have a report, you have another report, and you don't release it and you keep it quiet 
because it doesn't go along with what you've been saying. And I think we can't underestimate the E factor here. And the E factor is the embarrassment factor to government officials, both in the Trump and Biden administrations, who, if it comes out that for the past five years, they've spent millions and millions of dollars and wasted valuable time and resources examining this issue when, in fact, they actually mistook the mating calls of crickets and cicadas for a sonic microwave or energy attack when, in fact, that's what was happening. I think it's incredibly embarrassing, and that's another reason why there may be people in the government who keep muddying the waters and coming out and saying things like, oh, we think it's a microwave attack. Well, that's the current thinking with a number of government officials, but their own reports that they have had, like the Jason report, like the FBI report, are saying just the opposite. So how should we go about uh, dispelling these myths and also preventing their perpetuation? Yeah, well, um, how do we counter all this? And it's through education. I mean, this is a case of bad government, bad science, and bad journalism combining. The wheels of science and progress turn slowly, but they turn. And eventually, I think in the not-too-distant future, you're going to get a consensus among the scientific community that this is a case of mass psychogenic illness. It's going to take longer because of the politics. It's going to take longer for the media to come around. Um, This is a classic setup for mass psychogenic illness. Um, And after Havana, the State Department warned diplomats and intelligence officers all over the world to be on the lookout for any unusual medical events associated with strange sounds, what they refer to as anomalous health incidents. And it's not unsurprising that the floodgates have opened because now at any time, anybody who's an intelligence agent or diplomat, and now even the Department of Defense has warned all of its 2.9 million personnel and contractors to be on the lookout. Somebody wakes up in the morning in Germany and they're listening for a noise and they think they may have been attacked by some kind of mysterious energy weapon. You know, and the other thing that can't be overemphasized here is that there are many medical conditions that can account for these reports. I mean, throughout my life, about twice a year, I will suddenly be sitting somewhere and just lose my hearing and then experience this intense, high-pitched tinnitus that feels like an energy beam is piercing my head. And after several more seconds, it fades away. This condition um, is known as transient tinnitus, and it's common. And it can last more than a minute. It can be triggered by all sorts of things. And ordinarily, people don't pay too much attention to it. But if you're a diplomat on high alert, it could easily be mistaken for an energy attack. You know, Havana syndrome has become a catch-all category for an array of psychosomatic conditions and everyday ailments, the vast majority of which are seen every day in the offices of general practitioners and neurologists. The State Department and their officials and doctors failed to realize early on that the involvement of four people from the same CIA workstation is a defining feature of mass psychogenic illness, which is known to follow social networks. Outbreaks commonly begin in a small, cohesive unit and spread outward, starting with people of higher status, which is exactly what happened in Cuba. Those affected belong to a common work environment and social network who were under extreme stress in a foreign country 
where they knew they were under constant surveillance. I mean, during the 2018 Senate hearing on the so-called attacks, State Department medical doctor, Dr. Charles Rosenfarb, testified that when the initial cluster appeared, he consulted with a specialist in acoustic weapons due to the accompanying sounds. Well, his actions call to mind that adage, you know, what you expect to see is what you will see. It exemplifies the power of belief. One final word. Science is a process. And in the end, the process will work. It's not a group of scientists. It's a process. There are many views, and, and scientists can be wrong. That's because my friends and, and students will say, well, if it's... So a group of scientists says it must be true. Well, that is the science is a process, and it takes years sometimes for it to find the answers, but it will in this case, I'm sure. Oh, what truly, such a truly gripping story it is. So I was wondering if you felt like detectives or secret agents when you were trying to uncover all of these uh, mysteries uh, while writing Havana Syndrome book. Uh, that's, it's interesting because in several of the recent uh, newspaper uh, uh, reports, uh, it's Marco Rubia, the, the senator from Florida, has stated, is quoted as saying that people like myself and Robert are enemies of the government and that we are probably working as foreign agents. Uh, and of course, that's about as foolish as I think one could make a statement, but I, 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 I can assure you that neither of us are and uh, that we really want to get at the bottom of the truth. That's our goal. Exactly. And, you know, one of the things that's missed here is that they say, like, for example, the National Academy of Sciences panel came out and they said it was most likely the Frey effect. Well, the first scientist to identify the mechanism involved in the Frey effect was Ken Foster of the University of Pennsylvania. He says it's definitely not the Frey effect. The Frey effect is when microwaves strike your head and they trigger uh, a nerve in your ear or brain. There's a debate as to which one it is. And you get the perception of a barely discernible clicking sound, but it's not a sound. It's a stimulation of the nerve. And what's interesting here is of the first few people who were affected, they recorded their so-called attacks and you can play them back and hear them. Well, then it's not microwaves because you can't record microwaves. And of course, as Bob mentioned, when those recordings were analyzed, they were assessed to be the mating calls of the Indies short-tailed cricket. I mean, this is a story that you, you can't make this up. You know, the mating calls of crickets and cicadas being mistaken for a sonic attack. Um, but if you follow the science over time, this case will eventually be solved. And people say to me, they say, well, um, do you think this will ever be solved? And I tell them, yes, it's solved. Read our book. It's a classic setup for mass psychogenic illness. Absolutely. Excellent summary. So we've taken up a lot of your time. So can you tell us what are you currently working on and what will be your next projects? And we'll stop, uh, start with Bob. Uh, well, I, I, I just uh, completed a book that is uh, uh, medically called Medically Unexplained Symptoms, which essentially follows up on the Havana Syndrome, and but really gets into the medical explanation and the detailed neurophysiology and um, brain mechanisms for psychosomatic symptoms. And interestingly, what I'm currently working on and, and, and I, uh, another book that I finished is, is Exercise in the Brain. Um, 
how exercise can be so helpful for all types of symptoms, particularly for psychosomatic types of symptoms. But it is actually a remarkable uh, treatment for just about any neurologic disease. And of, of all the potential treatments we have for conditions such as dementia, stroke, and, and a whole wide range of neurodegenerative diseases, exercise is the single best effective treatment. So that's a, a book that will be coming out shortly. In, in my work right now, I continue every day to spend perhaps a half hour researching the latest claims about Havana syndrome and keeping right up to date on this. And there are so many twists and turns that, uh, that keep happening. Um, I'm also uh, always writing a book on the history of mass psychogenic illness. I've written several. And um, my other work looks at discrimination against Maori people, the indigenous people of New Zealand, and the history of racial segregation that took place here in New Zealand uh, from the 1920s to the 1960s, where in certain places, um, if you were Maori, they wouldn't cut your hair, they wouldn't let you upstairs in the cinema, they wouldn't serve you alcohol, and in at least one school, they had separate toilets for Maori and non-Maori people. And where can our listeners find more information about your work and also your book? Well, regarding well, I'm myself, uh, you go ahead, Bob. No, I, I, my, they're obviously uh, online. Uh, uh, I'm not a big uh, uh, internet presence, so but I my, certainly my books are available on on Amazon and uh, and, and uh, a whole variety of other uh, locations. But uh, and I have a, a certainly a, a website at, uh, at uh, UCLA where I've been a professor. And Robert? My website is rebartholomew.com. And the book is available on Amazon. Both uh, you can read the book or you can listen to it in audiobook. Excellent. Well, many thanks to both of you for joining me today and giving us a taster of this gripping story. Thank you. Enjoyed it. <laughs>